I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater, where we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's sort of a synopsis of the film that deserves to have another inspection. At least that's what we think. And we throw in some background on the actors, directors, perhaps even a half amusing story or two if we're doing our job right. So, fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review. We wrap up our theme this month, Walk the Dinosaur, our covering of a batch of weird films that all feature some of our favorite prehistoric beasts, with our final feature, Today, 1977's sci-fi train wreck, Planet of Dinosaurs. Join us! This week's film was first caught by me in the late 1980s, hanging out in the den of my maternal grandparents while the adults were in the other room enjoying coffee. Now, I had seen clips of this film before in a 1985 documentary simply titled Dinosaurs, which was hosted and narrated by the late, great Christopher Reeve. Yet another tape I have to say I watched on a loop, both because it had cool original stop-motion scenes and because it showed clips from all these sorts of dinosaur films of yore. That's where I first saw Gertie, clips from King Kong, clips from The Lost World, Ringo Starr's Caveman, a hundred million years BC, the Crater Lake Monster, and of course, this film. As I sat in slack-jawed wonderment, taking in all of this 70s hair, the bizarre fashion, and the claymation beast, I loved it. At one point, my father ended up coming into the room to check on me, and it was right during the spider attack scene in the cave. He was quick to point out how, hey, it's just a model, and then he tried to explain how stop motion worked to me. In hindsight, as an adult, I'm sure that was all just an effort to keep me from having nightmares and being scared. But in my mind, I just wanted to keep watching it. Because, hey, giant stop motion spiders and dinosaurs were just plain cool. Alas, I must say, I did not get to finish the film that evening. It was getting late, and we ended up departing for home. But I still remembered seeing it and liking it. So, naturally, like you do, I sat back and waited some 15-odd years before I decided to pick this film up again, and when I did that, I was an undergrad in college. The six-year-old inside of me still enjoyed the film thoroughly. But in saying that, it's not a good movie. The writing is awkward. The acting is stilted and unprofessional. The sets and wardrobe are chintzy to non-existent. It is a solid B-movie offering. Now, all that being said, here is what makes this a great movie. It doesn't care. Not one iota. This film barrels along like a runaway train. Director James Shea spent the bulk of the money for this feature 
on creation and animation of the stop-motion dinosaurs. It truly was money well spent. I would like to think that based on the clothing the actors are wearing, perhaps maybe $500 was left over for all of them to go to a sport mart, hey, kids ask your parents, and buy some sorts of futuristic blue, white, and brown tracksuits to be crew uniforms. Other than that, that's all she wrote. I'm not kidding, to this day some of the actors on this film, and I'm using the term actor in the loosest of sense, they claim that they still haven't been paid for working on this film. While I'm on it, here, sidebar with me. I think this film only truly had like four actual actors in it. Here's how you can tell. Out of the nine actors on this film, Five of them use their real names, in part because I think when someone would come up to them and say, Look out, Dan, there's a dinosaur! The actor would stare vacantly and not respond. Now, substitute, Look out, Chuck! There's a dinosaur! And you can just see the performance spring to the... Not, not really, they're still semi-vacant. But at least now they turn their head at the person talking. Look... I'm still going to maintain this movie is indeed great, but here, enough of my yakking about it. How about I just give you the trailer? Now entering orbit position. Emergency, emergency, runaway reactor. Check the emergency hatch. Captain, what the hell happened? The Odyssey disintegrated. We're alive and we're safe. We're shipwrecked. Oh, what the hell was that? We've got company. You know what this is, sweetheart? Eight minutes, it's for a week. I don't think a chicken might be. How are we going to get away from something that big? Space it, we're stuck here. This is our life now. This is our world. We can't risk lives trying to tame dinosaurs. We begin with disaster. A random unexplained failure of multiple systems begins to occur on the spaceship Odyssey, which seems to be a passenger ship, but only has two passengers. This forces the callow and semi-milk-toast Captain Lee Northsight, as played by Louis Lawless, to tell the crew of Nine that they are going to have to ditch their vessel on the nearest habitable planet they can find. This ends up taking them light years off course, and they continue on like all good sci-fi films and crash into a lake. Which just makes good sense. I mean, it saves on explosions, you don't have to build anything really, and you only have to show, like, the top half of a ship. The crew ends up extracting themselves from the ship, and they end up heading to shore, only to have their communications officer Cindy, as played by Mary Appleseth, realize that she left the radio on the ship. Seriously. You had one job, Cindy. One job. Affable crewmate and confirmed torso nudist, Chuck, as played by Chuck Pennington, announces he will help her retrieve it, and the two of them jump into the lake to make a go for saving the radio. 
Chuck is like torpedoing through that water, and he's getting way ahead of Cindy, which is all the stranger as Cindy is suddenly attacked by a don't blink or you'll miss it rubber head of a creature, and then screams a little, does her best Chrissy Watkins imitation from Jaws, and promptly disappears into the water. Some clearly red paint slash blood is seen, and for a about a half second on the film at least, and Chuck ends up deciding, even though he's just about to get to the ship, he's going to turn around and swim directly back to shore. Like, you know, the concept of radio retrieval is suddenly abandoned for everybody. Captain, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Captain, what are we going to do? Fine, Mr. Baylor. We've landed on a planet with atmosphere, and life conditions much like Earth. Yeah, yeah. I hear that's not so rare. The problem is, where the hell are we? I mean, I gotta get to a radio phone or something. He's gotta be kidding. I don't know. Mr. Bailey, we have just come out of subspace and we're light years away from any known civilization. What are you trying to tell me? This isn't Nebraska. There isn't any filling station down the road. There isn't any telephones. If there were, long distance rates would be something else. So we're lost. I don't know where we are. He doesn't know where we are. She don't know where we are. You don't know where we are. Didn't you send out an SOS? Yes, but I don't think it was received. Well, send it again, girl. Where is the distress transmitter? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I forgot to tow it in. Oh, great, great. <laughs> you not only lose a spaceship, you almost drowned all of us. And you land us God knows where. And now you're telling me you lost the most valuable piece of equipment we had aboard ship? Captain, the next ship you get, you're going to be the steward. It's designed to float. It's... it must be floating out there somewhere. I'll get it. Chuck? Wait! I'll help you. That's okay, Chuck can do it. No, it's my job. The crew suddenly gets very concerned about safety and getting the lay of the land. They break out supplies, which include three laser rifles, one of which is promptly given to Derna, as played by Derna Wilde, who has no business handling one, and within moments of being handed the weapon, she ends up dropping it into the swamp, which renders it useless. Eventually, they encounter an animal that they can actually see, and it turns out to be a brontosaurus, which astounds the group and it forces them to do some interesting mental gymnastics when it comes to understanding how life across the universe apparently follows the exact same evolutionary trajectory that Earth had. So, of course, welcome to Planet Dinosaur. Population them. They discover even more good news. You see, the crew member Charlotte, as played by Charlotte Spear, points out that the surrounding foliage, particularly the berries, are all extremely toxic, and they can't consume any of them. Please remember this for later. They end up having another frightening encounter where they watch a T-Rex battle and emerge victorious over a Stegosaurus. Lee decides this is all just too crazy. They need to get up the mountain and get on top of the plateau where it's going to be safer. That's based on nothing. Yeah, great plan. Leave your source of clean water and hunting to go climb into an entirely new biome you have yet to explore. Also, in Lee's infinite wisdom as captain, he gives all of the crew's food rations to one person, 
Nyla, who's played by Pamela Bataro, who proceeds to slip and drop the entire crate of their food down the side of the mountain. Second smart move in a row, Lee says, leave it. We don't have to worry about food until we get to the top. As the group picks its way up the mountain, the CEO passenger, Harvey Baylor, as played by Harvey Shane, goes out exploring, armed with the second laser rifle. He comes across a clutch of eggs and is overjoyed, thinking he could find and eat the bird that laid them. Unfortunately, the angry mother, Centosaurus, shows up and proceeds to give chase to Harvey. Harvey does manage to take a few pot shots at the beast, but is forced to run away until he comes invariably to the edge of the plateau they are standing on. With nowhere to run, he is impaled upon the dinosaur's horn, and his body is tossed off the mountain by the creature. brings the crew to a mountain pass and just declares, since it's lined with a few caves, this is the spot they're going to be safe. He gets a lot of pushback from the crew members, uh, namely Jim, as played by James Whitworth, who argues, hey, they're engineers. They shouldn't be living up here like cave people. They should be making tools and shelter and trying to figure out ways to grow steady food down in the valley. Only Nyla argues for Lee, which figures since he didn't blame her for screwing them all royally and losing all their food. Lee isn't having it though, pulls his rank of captain, so they all have to build this very flimsy looking wall that he keeps referring to as a stockade across this mountain pass. Nyla ends up going out looking for some food and materials in a cave and discovers that their very safe area is infested with cave spiders and one doesn't hesitate to attack her. Thankfully, Jim's nearby, and he ends up spearing it before it injures anybody. Jim again asserts, this is not going to work. Lee is building just a false sense of security. They need to be proactive, but Lee pushes back. Surely, they're going to be saved shortly, so it doesn't really matter. So what's the next brilliant move this group of people makes? Well, it seems good old Mustache Mike took some of those berries that he was told were poison and somehow in this time frame has made some homemade wine out of it. Well, that's it. Yeah. Let's go tell him. Stockage finished. Yeah! yeah. Tastes kind of weird, but 
although you wouldn't really be able to tell. The men hunt dinosaurs for meat, they keep drinking the gut rot together at night, and Lee pouts a lot that the crew doesn't trust him or his intuition that they will indeed be rescued. It would have gone faster if Jim had helped more. Jim doesn't think the stockade will do any good. He doesn't think it'll keep anything out. Not the big animals we saw below. That's why we climbed up to this plateau. We haven't seen anything up here that could get through that stockade. No, not so far. You agree with Jim? You think the stockade's a waste of time? I didn't say that. Jim thinks everything I do is a waste of time. He doesn't think I know what I'm doing. That's not true. Every time I give an order, I turn around and he's standing there staring at me. And it's obvious what he's thinking, that I'm a fool. Lee, you're taking his criticism too personally. It's not you he's attacking, it's just some of your decisions. It's the same thing. No, you're a fine man. Jim knows that. He just has some ideas of his own. He wouldn't question what you were saying unless he thought it was for the good of all of us. You agree with him? I just think he should be listened to sometimes. Lee, I'll always do what you say. Unless the time comes that I... I think one of your decisions might be wrong for my survival and the survival of the others. And then? And then I must make my own decisions. Suddenly... In a twist that is shocking to Lee, and really no one else, the T-Rex, who has two legs just like the people who walked up the mountain pass, comes through the camp one night, walks right through the stockade, and kills and carries off the comely Derna. Lee, shaken, agrees that they need to hunt the T-Rex, and hatches a plan that, again, only he is a fan of. They'll load up the body of a dinosaur that they've hunted with those poison berries and leave it right outside the T-Rex's cave. That way, nobody gets hurt. The only problem, Lee never establishes if the T-Rex is actually home in his cave. So they go through this entire process only to run directly into the Rex. And as they make a hasty retreat, Mike gets eaten in the process. Spoiling the plan further and making Lee look like, well... Lee. The alternative is they go with Jim's plan. They utilize the same poison berries, but instead of hoping the Rex eats the food, the plan involves pissing it off and then making it chase them, where they run past a series of sharpened stakes that they've rubbed down with the berry juice. Ultimately, the goal is to have the Rex going so fast it can't stop itself and it will be impaled upon their spike trap. And you know what? It actually works. What do you have to say about that, Captain? So we smash cut to what is obviously several years later. Beards have grown out, except for 
chucks, and some hair has turned gray. The men are all working with tools and farming in a compound, and we see that Chuck and Charlotte have had a child or two. Essentially, everything Jim predicted they could do if they just worked together in the beginning came to fruition. While working, they absentmindedly ponder if they'll ever get rescued, and Nyla simply states, meh, I don't think it matters anymore. And they all go back to living like the Flintstones. Together. Forever. Great. Hey, supper's almost ready. What is it tonight? Lizard again? No, we had that last night. Today we're having filet of swamp monster. You know, it's getting so I like that. We're almost finished. We'll be right there. Okay. Are you going to count that, Nyla? Mikey, one, two, three. Where's my four? Five. Seven. Goodbye! I think we'll ever be rescued. Somehow it doesn't really matter anymore. much to unpack here. I feel it's important to start off with the wonderful sobering fact that Louis Lawless, who played Captain Lee Norsyth, quit acting after making this film, sparing us all for more of his fine performances. This film never actually got a theatrical release, so I find it particularly interesting as to how many people want to write it off as pure cheese, which it absolutely is, while denying it any due that it deserves for the special effects it has. Even though it was released in 1977, in some places in the country, 1978, for reasons I can't uncover, at least not to date, it was not submitted formally for consideration for a Saturn Award until the year 1980, and that's when it won Best Film Produced for under $1 million, and it was all due to the stop-motion effects. Now, I have to say, the poster art for this film is shameless. There are posters that have been modified to cash in on the Star Wars craze going on at the time. One of them shows the profile of an X-Wing flying across some dinosaurs, and then the other one literally shows the Millennium Falcon turned basically on an angle with the T-Rex standing over it. It's just bonkers, I know. Even if you haven't seen this movie, the odds are fairly high that you've seen the stop-motion sequences from it. Low-budget director Fred Olin Ray has lifted dinosaur footage directly out of this film and has inserted it back into a number of his own movies to save on production costs and to bulk up the runtime of his pictures. 1988's Phantom Empire comes to mind. Sidebar, while I do like schlock, Fred Olin Ray, to me, is the anti-Roger Corman, which itself is kind of weird because they've actually worked on some projects together. Ray has been around for years now, and he's, I think, in his mid-60s. If you look back on his work, it follows this clear pattern. He claimed that he's a low-budget independent filmmaker, which fine, he is. 
and he's made some memorable content that has made sure video stores of the late 80s and 90s have had dumb, easy-to-consume material. Same goes for basic and pay cable. My problem with him. Like Corman, he will watch Which Way the Wind is Blowing, and he'll make a film in the same popular vein. That's fine. I get it. Here's the difference. Corman will hire an up-and-coming, hungry director, he'll put together a serviceable story, and he will get actors he knows are competent and trying to break into the business. It's on a very strict budget, but it's still done to the best of everyone's ability. Will he use cheap explosions, special effects, and nudity to help detract from a film's flaws? Absolutely. Again, it's the film that comes first. Here's my problem with Fred. Observe. We're back with our incredible filmmaking guest, Fred Olin Ray. How do you go about selling your movies? Normally I would say I stand on the street corner with a can and offer it to people as they walk by, but now it's gotten a little more sophisticated. And uh, we generally try to make a trailer, which is sort of a coming attractions that we usually make before we make the movie. So we take someone else's film that has something good in it, we cut the scenes out of their movie, and cut them into our trailer, and tell people it's our film, and then we sell it. Hopefully no one will remember uh, when we deliver the Unbelievable. picture. Unbelievable. So you used to stand on the street corner with a can, now you go to can. That's it, yeah. Go That's where the party is. Parties move are. from the street corner to France, but it's still the same crowd. <laughs> What's the cheapest special effects you've ever done in your, fil in your films? Probably asking a girl to take her top off. Oh, that's cheap, honey. I know, it is. You are really It's low. fast, you don't have to wait on it, hardly ever goes wrong, and no one ever complains. Oh, that's beautiful. And no wires to worry about. Hey, the... do you like big boobs like Russ Meyer? <laughs> are you a boob man? Uh, no, but, you know, you can't hardly avoid them uh, nowadays because most of the girls that come through our office have already been augmented in some way, shape, or form. What a classy fellow. Slimeball. In my opinion, Fred Olin Ray makes movies the way junior high boys fill out Mad Libs books. They start with an adjective, wet, they add a plural noun, boobs, and then they have to go someplace, a setting, space. Alright fellas, start filming. No strong storyline, he films it himself, he produces it himself, he hires whatever woman will agree to be on camera, clothed or partially clothed, and he calls it a film. And I find his films frustrating and tedious to watch, knowing that he usurps other people's work, even from a B-movie like this, to put in his Z-grade films. That gets my goat. Again, pet peeve of mine. thankful for all the positive feedback we've received on this sidecar segment. It's been nice being able to have another voice along for the ride with us, and you listeners seem to be in agreement. 
So this week, we yet again have a passenger in the sidecar, and yes, returning to us again, it's none other than the great podcasting monologist, Mr. Velocipeter himself, from the Velocipodcast, and he's here to give us his particular take on the film Planet of Dinosaurs. So what's in store for us today, Peter? Hi, this is Peter from Velocipodcast, and I just wanted to point something out. Should you watch the planet of the dinosaurs, I was very interested in the things I would learn because this is from supposedly a more technologically advanced time than the one we are living in now. They have spaceships, interstellar travel. They are clearly a more advanced society. And thus there should be a lot for us to learn about what the future holds for us. And yet what I became focused on more than anything else was the complete inability for them to build a single shirt. So there is a character named Chuck. Now, he is our burly character. He is our manly man. He isn't the lead manly man within this movie. He's sort of the man meat of the group. And very early on, he takes his shirt off to swim, and then he never puts it back on. This happens within the first 20 minutes of the film. The crew is stranded on the planet of the dinosaurs for years. We see the initial crash when they have to survive, and they learn that this planet is hostile and violent, and there are lots of things that can kill them and scare them and make life miserable. They trek their way up to higher ground and start building defensive perimeters, and they even have time to ferment berries to make some kind of alcoholic beverage. And yet in this whole time, which I assume at this point is weeks to months, because it does take time to ferment berries, They have yet to get Chuck a new shirt. He didn't lose his shirt from before. He took it off and no one picked it up or they didn't go back and get it and they have yet to get anything to replace it. So Chuck has been shirtless for literally weeks at this point. Then, not to ruin the film for you, but we have to jump to the end. And when we jump to the end of the film, this is years later. We know this because our character with a black beard has now become our character with a gray beard. And it takes a long time to change the color of a beard unless you're using dye, which I don't think they did. I think they actually waited the years because this is the kind of commitment they make when making a film like this. Everyone has new clothes. They have clothes that have clearly been made from the skins of animals they've, had, they've killed. They've learned how to cure that leather themselves. They're all wearing their own unique and individual stylized form of clothing. And yet Chuck still doesn't have a shirt. Everyone has had time to make new clothes for themselves. They've produced children And yet, Chuck is still without a shirt, which would imply to me that the three to five years they've been on this planet, he has remained completely shirtless. And that shows me the lack of thought that they put into the things around them. Somehow their society evolves so they don't see the things that are right in front of them, like Chuck's chest. They get to a point where they actually start making Stone Age tools, and they do this before they start making Chuck a shirt. Well, by now, Peter, you should recognize the clear truth. Chuck's pecs have a hypnotic quality. Realizing that he is more powerful when shirtless, Chuck uses his secret skill to manipulate the captain and Charlotte into doing his bidding, such as letting him apparently be the only man allowed to have access to the sole razor on the planet, keeping his smooth free of beard face, and, of course, to beguile Charlotte into loving him and eventually agreeing to have his children, all through vast amounts of exposure to his naked torso. Well spotted, indeed. 
The initial hostility of the planet is demonstrated to us by the fact that when swimming in water, something in the water kills and eats a woman. There is a man, a very brave man named Chuck, who went in to save the woman. I believe the director used the term swim more dramatically when this happened. But now that we know there is violent and dangerous life within the water, they immediately demonstrate their lack of forethought by all running to the edge of the water to help Chuck out and then lay down right next to the water line. At this point, we don't know what kind of animal life is on the planet, but we know that there's something dangerous and violent within the water, something that could eat a human being. There are only two animals I think of, and that's the shark and a crocodile. If it's a crocodile, if it's a shark, yes, laying on the water's edge means you're relatively safe. Still not perfect because the shark can move up and probably swim back in. It is very possible for that to happen. But if it is a crocodile, you are in immediate danger. And everyone standing around the same place just means there are more targets for the crocodile to choose from. And this is exactly what animals want. So my belief in the crew at this single point very early in the film has already dropped significantly. Now, of course... Having crashed on an alien planet, this means everyone is very on edge and very nervous. And so how do you take one of the female assistants, this is the 70s, so they were treated a little differently, I'll be quite honest, and how do you calm them down? Well, you hand them a laser gun that they state clearly can kill almost anything, and then they provide her with zero training on how to yield that weapon. So she is holding onto a gun that can kill almost anything in the universe, according to the guy who gave it to her. And they provide her with no training, no advice on how to handle this weapon. We don't know if it has a safety. I assume it does because this is a very advanced society. Of course, they're going to have a safety on the weapon that they carry with them. But that means they have not told her how to take the safety off the weapon. So if there is an actual emergency where they have to use the laser, she cannot use the laser. So this is a placebo. This is a terrible thing to do because in an actual situation, it means you have basically removed the ability of the group to use that laser gun. But then we find out very soon afterwards that if you get a laser gun wet, it stops functioning completely. This seems to be a significant design flaw for a weapon that is supposed to be going to multiple planets, which would include multiple terrains, which if we are going to live on it as human beings, would include a great deal of water. In fact, the usage of this laser gun is something to point out throughout the whole of the film. Whenever you are being chased by a dinosaur, you should not turn around and actually shoot the laser gun that's in your hand. You should just keep running. And often the running within the film, as noted at minute 2441, you should make as much noise as possible when running and flail your arms almost irresponsibly. But I think for me, in conclusion, that the downfall of all of civilization basically comes down to the fact that they never got Chuck a new shirt. Again, I feel Peter and I are on the same wavelength. Who gives a novice a weapon and then just walks away? That's not the behavior of a seasoned veteran crew. These are just a bunch of rank amateurs, and again, I do love how he ties everything all back to blaming Chuck and his lack of shirts. Well done indeed, good sir, and thank you, thank you again for sharing this with us. version of Planet of Dinosaurs we screened here at the LSCE was the 2017 Cheesy Movies release, which is a bare-bones DVD version of the original film. 
No frills for sure, but one gets a quality scan at least of the original film print. Currently, it seems this particular version of the film is now out of print, and while there are some lesser versions that are still currently selling, marked up to about $45 a pop, I would recommend seeking out the $9.99 Rift Tracks version if you'd like a little bit of extra comedy sprinkled in with your dinosaur viewing. All that being said, this is again is a film that can be viewed in its entirety on YouTube. Uh, and you know I'm going to urge you folks to at least please continue supporting physical media, because... Hey, that's how this weird, rare, fun stuff gets to be seen by the likes of us movie lovers. And at the end of the day, isn't that the most important thing? So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. I'd like to again extend a special thank you to our sidecar guest, the Velocipeter himself. If you enjoyed his breakdown, and of course you did, you can find him speaking on a host of other topics at the one, the only, Velosa Podcast, which is available through iTunes, Spotify, or you can go right to the source at velocipeter.com. This wraps up our month of Walking the Dinosaur, and we look forward to new vistas and challenges as we approach next month's theme, which I think is aptly entitled, You Suck. But I guess we will have to get more into that next week, eh? So, again, thank you for joining us. We have been having slow but steady growth out there, folks, and it's all because of you. So I would ask you, please, again, if you like us, follow us on Facebook at the Linden Street Cinema Experience and recommend us to your friends. We're on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at LSCEP. Please, Follow or subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. If you're an Apple Podcast user, please, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star and a review from you. If you want to get in touch with us, make comments, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to have even more personal interaction, would like to have a segment perhaps on the sidecar, send us an audio message by way of Anchor, a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please, take care out there, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy, everybody. Music